Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I've actually gone to all of the places where artificial intelligence is generated. What was really clear to me is that it's certainly not artificial. AI is made of people. It's made of minerals. It's made of salt and coal. And so in that sense, it's it's really the opposite of artificial. It's profoundly material. But at the same time, we think of it as intelligent, as though somehow we're creating these brains that live in sort of disembodied space. But it's not human intelligence or even really like human intelligence. So in many ways, I think this term artificial intelligence has become a bit of a cognitive trap where we tend to assume that these systems are somehow smarter than they are and also less impactful on the planet. That's Kate Crawford. She's the author of the book Atlas of AI, Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence. AI, machine intelligence, deep learning, all these are technologies that I've been fascinated with for years now. Fascinated with both their ability to help us understand the world and nervous about their inability to understand us humans. So I welcomed the chance to talk with a woman who spent some 20 years exploring the social, political, and environmental impacts of artificial intelligence. This is great. I'm going to really enjoy this conversation because I've always been fascinated with artificial intelligence, so-called And I thought that one of the problems was privacy. That's an important one, but you see many more, don't you? Absolutely. My work is really focused on the broader social, political, and even ecological consequences of building planetary-scale AI systems. Perhaps the line that's been most quoted from the book is that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. Yes, tell tell (laughs) tell me how that's so. Well, it's more than just a catchphrase. Part of what I've been doing for, gosh, almost the last 20 years is researching the full scale of how AI systems are made. And so what that means is that I've actually gone to all of the places where artificial intelligence is generated, not just in terms of the code and the algorithms and you know life in the cloud that we read about in the press, but actually going to the places where the minerals are extracted that are used to create large-scale data centers, going to the places where all the energy is extracted, also going to the places where people are actually working inside, you know, click farms and Amazon distribution nodes. And in doing all of this sort of ethnographic work, what was really clear to me is that it's certainly not artificial. AI is made of people. It's made of minerals. It's made of salt and coal. And so in that sense, it's, it's really the opposite of artificial. It's profoundly material. But at the same time, we think of it as intelligent, as though somehow we're creating these brains that live in sort of disembodied space. But again, if we really look at how AI is made, it's 
ultimately statistical analysis at scale, which of course can do fantastic things, but it's not human intelligence or even really like human intelligence. It can't do anything without being trained on large-scale data sets or being given predefined rules and rewards. So in many ways, I think this term artificial intelligence has become a bit of a cognitive trap where we tend to assume that these systems are somehow smarter than they are and mm. also less impactful on the planet. It, it started as an attempt, as I understand it, artificial intelligence and machine learning, which I guess is just another term for it. It started as an attempt to mimic the human brain, didn't it? with neural neural networks, which I remember playing with 20 years ago. I was naively putting in data, whatever I could gather. If you were trying to figure out the direction the stock market would go in, you could put prices from past times, all kinds of data, hoping that matching one set of data with another, you start to see a relationship emerge that's not not apparent to the naked eye, over and over again, you see a correlation and you start to think, is that correlation meaningful? For instance, I've heard that years ago they were talking already about determining hotspots in a city by putting together all the information they could of things happening in the city, transportation, fire department calls, police calls, and try to figure out where the danger would be next. Is that another example of it? These are great examples. And in fact, you've pointed to one of the biggest scientific shifts that I think machine learning represents, which is this move towards correlation rather than causation. And in your example, you could think of the way in which predictive policing services currently work, which is that they're built on large collections of aggregate crime data to try and suggest where they should be putting resources in future and where sort of police should be directing their attention. But in that very same example, you can see how this can go wrong, which is once you look at historical crime data, it is, of course, representing so many sort of racial biases and so many forms of, of prejudice and over-policing. And once you use that as your so-called ground truth, you've then created a system that in many ways is amplifying those very same biases that you would want to avoid in creating a system like that. And so certainly the reliance on large-scale training data in machine learning is something that I've spent a lot of time looking at. The idea of using historical data and relying on that seems to go against the very thing I was taught to say when I sold mutual funds as a way to support my family while I was trying to get work as an actor. <laughs> The thing I had to always mention was past performance is no guarantee of future success. Yes. And so now there are two <laughs> mistakes built in from the very beginning. One is thinking you can learn about now from studying before and also just looking at correlations as though they're causation. There's, that's a real double-barrel problem right there. And the third problem, it seems to me it's a terrible problem when you don't know how the machine has learned what it claims to have learned, and you rely on its, its answers. You say, well, look, I put all this data in, the machine said, this is a good solution, this is the way things really are, so now we're going to go with it. 
but you can't track how it came to its conclusion. You've perfectly isolated one of the biggest problems in machine learning and specifically in deep learning, which is that it can be incredibly difficult to find out how an answer was arrived at. And this can create very serious problems. I'll give you an example. The British Medical Journal is doing an ongoing review of hundreds of algorithms that were produced as a way to try and predict and treat COVID-19. And what they found after extensive testing is that None of them, as in zero, were actually helpful in doing what they said they would do. And in fact, some of the authors suggested that these algorithms could be directly harmful. So not only is it extremely difficult to tell, particularly with deep learning algorithms, how they're actually getting to their results, but in many cases, these systems simply aren't ready for prime time yet, and they're being put in some of our most sensitive institutions like criminal justice, education, and healthcare. You, you make me think of the problem that by using data that's reflecting the way things are socially, it's often doing little more than repeating the bias that already exists that it's drawing its data from. But I've read you, you're saying that it actively constructs biases, that it creates biases all by itself. How does it do that? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at this problem. One is looking at the examples of AI failures and, and AI bias. So let's take Amazon's uh, attempt to create a CV or resume scanner. So lots of people want to get a job at Amazon. They're sending in their resumes and they're using an AI system to scan the resumes and decide if someone should get an interview. Well, what they noticed after a couple of years was that the system was only recommending men. In fact, it was consistently downvoting people who even mentioned the word woman on their resume. Hmm. And why was this the case? Well, interestingly, you could think about a system like that as quite a profound diagnostic machine because, of course, it was trained on all of the resumes of successful Amazon engineers. And surprise, surprise, have a guess at what percentage of Amazon engineers are men. <laughs> Just over 80%. So it might not be that much of a surprise that a system like that is actually producing these really biased results. But one of the things that I do in my work is not just look at the outputs, but look at the inputs of AI systems. And here is where we see that the problem isn't just bias. There's a much deeper problem of classification. So we've been talking a bit about training data, you know, which is the, the data we use for AI systems to see and interpret the world. Many of these data sets are actually categorized in ways that would give you absolute nightmares. Some of the more obvious things is that, you know, they categorize people into binary gender. So you can only be a man or a woman, which of course in 2021 seems pretty retrograde. Some classify people into one of four races, which is, you know, truly echoing sort of the worst eras of the South African apartheid regime. But some are also classifying you according to characteristics, personality, morality, and emotion. So one of the most famous training data sets, ImageNet, actually has categories for things like bad person, alcoholic, kleptomaniac, bad, bad slatten, person. 
And, you know, many people have just had their images scraped off the internet and put into these categories who have no idea that they've been labeled in this way and being used in one of the most famous training sets in AI's history. Well, how, so, how would a person fall into that category in the first place? Well, this is the very interesting thing. It's it's even more janky than you can imagine. So the way that this training set was created over 12 years ago was by scraping 14 million images from the internet and then asking crowd workers at Amazon Mechanical Turk to label them, generally giving sort of 50 labels a minute. And so you're asking people to just quickly categorize images into, into these quite absurd labels. And of course... They're thinking, well, I've, I've got to give this a label. So what you see when you look into it, it just makes no sense. You, you see images of a, a person holding a glass of champagne at their graduation listed as an alcoholic. You know, you see a, a woman wearing a, a, a nice cocktail frock listed as a slattern. I mean, it's it's truly <laughs> horrifying. But but this is the this is the shifting sands which we are calling the ground truth of artificial intelligence. So I actually think there's a much more fundamental problem than just the you know occasional spectacular example of AI bias. The problem is how we are training these systems to classify and interpret the world. And in many cases, we're training them with the worst possible understandings that none of us, if we were to look at them directly, would say, this is how we want the world to be interpreted. And decisions are being made for us that can concern our lives. And we don't know to what extent it's the result of this kind of faulty machine learning. Exactly right. In fact, one of the, the forefathers of artificial intelligence, Joseph Weizenbaum, he's, he's somebody who I find particularly fascinating because he was the man who created Eliza. Do you remember Eliza? She was one of the first chat bots. I wrote a computer program once with my faulty uh, <laughs> understanding of the basic language. It was a uh, session with a psychiatrist, and you're the patient. And uh, he says, hello, what, how do you feel today? And he picks up on certain words. Oh, tell me about your mother. Exactly. And you start to believe you're talking to a psychiatrist. And when you, when you get really involved, he says, I'm sorry, your time is up. <laughs> like any good psychiatrist. <laughs> right, right. It comes with a diploma, right? Brilliant. And, so, and of so course... yes, I do remember it, Eliza, right? Alan, this is why I love the fact that you know this field so well. That's exactly right. And, and, and what was interesting about Eliza was even when Weizenbaum first created the program, he would find that his personal secretary would start having these conversations with Eliza, the pretend therapist, and she would ask him to leave the room so she could have a personal discussion with Eliza. And he started worrying. He said, look, this is actually pointing to a, a, a big problem, which is what he called the powerful delusional thought that people would begin to assume that AI systems are smarter than they actually are. So uh. even in the 1970s, he could see that this was an emerging problem. And he wrote a wonderful book called Computational Power and Human Reason, which I think today still stands as a really powerful testimony from somebody who was seeing the future of artificial intelligence as something that would require far more caution than we currently give it. It's interesting. It's, it's, it often or it ha has more than once happened that the person who gets the ball rolling also recognizes that it can go in the wrong direction. Pierre and Marie Curie understood that, that radiation could be used 
in a harmful way. Jennifer Doudna has expressed caution about CRISPR. And the man who figured out Eliza, same thing. Mm-hmm. But but then it's so attractive that other people come along and go ahead with it. If it, if you can build it, you do. It's a little reckless. That's exactly right. I mean, there's there's a phenomenon that uh, a co-author of mine I call enchanted determinism. So Alex Campolo and I sort of noticed this phenomenon that AI systems are so commonly seen as as being somehow otherworldly, alien, sort of superhuman, so therefore mm. sort of outside of our understanding or outside of regulation in particular, but at the same time deterministic in that we would somehow just trust them to make really sensitive predictions about our lives, our education, our jobs, our healthcare, etc. So that that sort of phenomenon of enchanted determinism, I, I see everywhere, not just in the industry, but also with policymakers who have to contend with, you know, how should we write laws about controlling these systems? So I think one of the things that's so important to me in my work is demystifying these systems, actually giving people ways to see inside them, to think about their logics, and to also be able to find ways to say, no, this system shouldn't be used here, to, to give us a kind of muscle that we, we don't get to exercise much, this idea of the ability to refuse AI systems where they don't serve us. When we come back from our break, Kate Crawford delves into what she regards as the dubious uses of AI to understand and interpret human emotions and the underappreciated toll that AI systems are taking on the environment. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science, including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit Sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kate Crawford. What about emotion, reading emotions? There's a lot of that happening. Exactly right. And, And particularly in the pandemic, we've seen the use of many systems to read or so-called interpret videos of of workers as they work from home or students as they sort of take tests online um, and then analyze the so-called micro expressions on their faces and then use that to make predictions about their internal state, you know, what they're really feeling. And one of the things that I did for the Atlas of AI book was, was really go all the way back to where this idea comes from. And in fact, there's a psychologist by the name of Paul Ekman, who back in the 1960s really wanted to kind of prove his theory that there were six universal emotions, things like fear and happiness and anger, um, and then to try and map that cross-culturally around the world. And even then, 
anthropologists like Margaret Mead were really concerned and, and said, look, this is this is simply not the way humans work. You know, we're relational. We feel things in relation to our context and our culture and our history. Um, and, and in many cases, we don't necessarily show how we're really feeling on our faces. I mean, frankly, as somebody who, you know, has worked in a bookshop when I was growing up, I can tell you many times when you're working in the service industry and smiling, it's not how you're really feeling. <laughs> but, but guess what? We have right now many technical systems that are making this, I think, deeply problematic and sometimes quite pseudoscientific analysis of people's faces and claiming to understand their true inner state. So this is a case of where I think people are actually believing the snake oil rather than actually being more skeptical about what these systems can actually do. What's the correlation that they find between points on the face and emotion? Isn't, does it go back all the way to Ackerman when he went around the world and trying to identify that? It really does. He, you know, created a system called the FACTS system where you could analyze facial expressions. But, but we could go even further back to figures like Alphonse Bertillon, who tried to sort of take many black and white photographs of prisoners in the 1900s and sort of use this to analyze emotion. It's, I think, in many ways, this sort of long-standing phrenological impulse, you know, the, the impulse yeah. to be able to look at someone's face or head shape and know their true inner character. But there's a fantastic study that was done just a couple of years ago by Lisa Feldman Barrett and her team, which looked at all of the literature claiming to see an association between facial expression, movements on the face, and, you know, deep emotional states. And what she found was that there was no reliable correlation between those two things. Now, there could be in some contexts, in some contexts there wouldn't be. But the idea that you could automate the idea that a smile equals happiness and, and a frown equals sadness is so problematic. It has been used in the past, even in airports, to try and detect which people might be under stress or looking shifty and anxious that could be used to indicate that they might be a terrorist. In fact, the SPOT system was one of these systems that was, again, inspired by Ekman's thinking, which was then shown to have not just, you know, problematic impacts and then it didn't really work, but also that it was very racially biased because, you know, mm. who tends to be feeling under pressure when they're sort of put in front of police and, and customs officers? Again, that's, that is coming from very specific racialized histories. So I think in many cases, these sorts of systems actually need much stronger regulation and frankly, much more scientific debate so that things that we know don't work aren't being allowed to be tested in the wild, on millions of people. You make me think of the AI system that you described targeting Syrian refugees as terrorists when, in fact, there was no connection to a terrorist organization. Exactly right. And, and, and that was... You know, to be fair, an experimental program that was not instantiated, but was used as a test bed uh, at IBM. And it was used as a way of really sort of gathering all of these different sorts of data to try and predict, or if you will, give a person a terrorist credit score. And this is something that I think is, is profoundly common. We certainly hear about things like sort of social credit scores in China and elsewhere, but we forget that these kinds of systems are being used everywhere 
and quite frequently on the most vulnerable populations, being used against immigrants, being used against refugees, being used on children. I mean, this is the common story of the last 20 years of AI development, which is another reason why I think we you know, urgently need stronger protections. So what can be done? Does it need to be revised? Does it need to have regulation or so, of some kind? Do critics need to be introduced into the process so that it's not solely the creation of an algorithm for the sake of creating a fancy algorithm to make a unintended consequences a little bit less unintended? Exactly. Can I say yes to all of the above? I mean, certainly, <laughs> um, certainly that would that would make an enormous difference. And I think you've isolated some of the, the the biggest steps that we need to take. We do need regulation. We've seen the EU, in fact, draft the very first omnibus AI bill, uh, which is now you know under consideration, and I think certainly addresses a lot of the things we've talked about today. But we also need, I think, in many ways to change how we train computer scientists. I mean, in many ways, we have right now so many AI institutes that are purely technical in nature. You will learn about code and algorithms, but you won't be learning about social science or what happens when you create a system in a school or a system in a police department. So these questions that are primarily really social, historical, and political questions aren't being addressed in traditional computer science pedagogy. So breaking down some of those disciplinary boundaries, I think, is, is certainly really important here. Another thing that I think could be really interesting, too, is, is to rethink the way that these systems are publicly discussed and understood. Mm. You know, one of the things that, that I've, I've really enjoyed in, in my career as an academic is actually collaborating with people in completely different spaces. So I've collaborated with artists like Trevor Paglin and Vladan Jola, and we do things like create large-scale uh, installations and visualizations in museums and in universities so that people can actually see how these systems work. And I think introducing more of a, a sense of skepticism and questioning I think is also a really healthy move um, to sort of, if you will, step away from the techno-utopianism that's really marked the last 20 years. And part of that also means looking at the full life cycle of AI systems, really going from soup to nuts, looking at, you know, what it is to actually create these systems from the mines where all of the minerals are extracted and smelted and then shipped around the earth, and then looking at what happens in the data pipelines from issues of privacy and data harvesting all the way to the through to the end of life where we, you know, tend to discard our iPhones and computers in five years or less of using them. So I think taking this much wider lens on thinking about AI systems would actually help us decide where is this worth it and when is it not worth it? When are the harms actually outweighing the benefits? Or another way of thinking about this is who benefits most from AI? Who has become the most enriched? And which people are the most harmed? In that sense, I think doing a far more rigorous analysis of power in artificial intelligence would be incredibly helpful. You were mentioning the cost to the environment. And I think you say in the book that the cost of artificial intelligence to the environment is greater than the airplane industry. Is that right? 
Yeah, certainly data centers overtook the airline industry before the pandemic. So we're already seeing an enormous impact. And that's just of the the data center infrastructure that backs the cloud. So that doesn't include the stuff you get out of the earth to, to make the data centers. Exactly. And the mining and the, 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 the extraction expenses. It's just keeping those computers cooled. Right. And plugged in. Yep. That's exactly right. And in fact, it's extremely hard to get good data about the full costs of creating a large-scale AI system, what it takes to actually make those data centers, what's happening on a planet where we're already seeing, we're reaching the limit of some of the, the core minerals that actually are used throughout kind of technology systems like lithium and cobalt. So yes, I think we need exactly that, sort of a much deeper sense of what does it really take to build planetary computation? So what's the reaction of the engineers who create these systems when you and others raise a flag of caution? Don't don't they also have concern for their fellow citizens? It's been funny, actually, since this book has come out. I've, I've been asked if, if many of the engineers in, in big tech companies are, are annoyed or angry that I'm talking about the potential costs of their systems. Actually, the opposite has happened. I've been contacted by many kind of senior engineers who say that they've been really concerned about these problems for a while, but really are uncertain about how to actually change the way uh, that AI is being developed. So I think we're actually seeing a moment. Um, It's connecting to what's called in the sort of broader parlance, the sort of the tech backlash. But I think it's actually more interesting than that. I think there's a moment where people are actually saying, we have to be much more careful around what we build, why we're building it, and who might be harmed when it's deployed. And in some ways, engineers really are sort of the, the front line. You know, they, they are really can see how these systems are, are working and sometimes failing. So I actually am quite optimistic that in some ways, the people who are now creating these systems are the ones who are starting to listen to the critiques and trying to think differently about the way that we build AI. We've, we've, we've really moved beyond the sort of, if we think of the moments of like when Facebook was launching and using phrases like, you know, move fast and break things. The things that have been broken in the last 10 years have been pretty serious, you know, from elections to, you know, at, at people's medical diagnoses. Um, so we, I think we really have to have a moment now to, to change the culture of technical development. It sounds like you have a really, really large communication problem because you have to deal with the engineers who are currently creating these systems and get them to see the full nature of what they're doing or what they're what they will be doing. And you have to get the public interested and governmental agencies interested who the agencies themselves are probably buying this stuff. <laughs> exactly right. Alan, I'm trying to be optimistic here. You're making it really hard. Um, I know. I've, I've, I was just going to check out when I'm turning off, turning off the computer. <laughs> yes, we'll have to turn off our videos, which is, you know, burning even more carbon. Look, you're exactly right. Um, and not only do we have to start moving very quickly, but during a time of real 
climate crisis. I mean, we really have, you know, 20 years or less to, to sort of really turn the boat around in terms of the amount of carbon that we're producing. And, and this is part of that problem. So it, it's not a small issue. I completely agree with you. But my sense is that we are on the precipice of you know, some really significant change. And I do think the public right now is starting to realize just how important AI is, not just in terms of these decisions that are being made about our lives every day, but also in terms of these longer-term impacts on the planet. So, you know, just as we saw, you know, industries like, you know, big tobacco have to completely radically change what they do with the realization that you know their products could be harmful. I think we have to have a moment like that as well with artificial intelligence. I don't want to overstate the enormity of the problem or the the, the badness of it. But is there nothing about machine learning that could give us some insight in how to be more efficient in the uses of our energy? Actually, that's where I'm the most optimistic about machine learning. Uh, if we think about the way that we even understand our planet uh, as a system which is undergoing climate change, those kinds of insights have come from collecting enormous amounts of data and doing machine learning. So certainly the way that we understand ecologies, the way that we understand planets and the solar system, these are changes that I think are actually really important. Um, but it's when we really turn these systems to understanding people and understanding societies that I think we have far greater problems. So in some ways, it's, it's certainly not a case of, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's more about trying to be far more incisive and I think skeptical about where we apply machine learning. I think certainly over the last five years, there's been a sense of it's the hammer and everything is a nail. But what we're learning is that it's actually a much more specific sort of tool that works well with some kinds of data, but certainly not if you want to have a clear and transparent explanation, or if you actually want to make sure that you're understanding the histories of crime data or neighborhood change. In these sorts of contexts, particularly complex social contexts, machine learning is not something that is, has shown itself to be very reliable. And so again, that's where I think we have to start saying we need more of a politics of refusal. We need to be able to say, no, we don't want things like facial recognition being used here in a public housing building. Or no, we don't want to use emotion recognition on our children as they study from home. Trying to make those kinds of distinctions, that's the muscle that I think we need to exercise more. That sounds very encouraging. And meanwhile, we can't opt out of being part of a data set. Exactly. Well, I, this has been a really interesting conversation, just as I knew it would be from the very beginning. <laughs> we always end our show with seven quick questions. Uh, are, you, are you game? I'm game. Absolutely. Not necessarily in terms of what we've been talking about, but just in general. What do you wish you really understood? <sighs> I would have to say illuminated manuscripts. I oh, could, why? I could, you know, I think this, the idea of how knowledge has been transferred and understood, take, for example, the Voynich manuscript. We still don't understand 
what it's saying. It's an extraordinary coded text. So the idea of sort of dedicating yourself to understanding sort of the the ways in which knowledge is transferred, that's something that I find fascinating. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very diplomatically. Do you actually let them know they have them wrong? <laughs> I think it's important to do so, but I always mm. think that it's it's always good to listen very closely and to think about why they might have their facts wrong and perhaps approach it from where they're coming from. All right. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> Gosh, that's a that's a long list. Oh um, yes. <laughs> well, just give us one good one. But perhaps perhaps because I have a parallel history as an electronic musician, oh. the questions the questions that I get around my favorite analog synthesizer and why, for example, I love the 808 drum machine. These are strange questions, but frankly, Alan, I can talk about them for hours. Wow, woman of all seasons. (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, that's a really good skill to have. Um, Perhaps by walking in the other direction? (laughs) 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 Abruptly. (laughs) But it wouldn't be noticed. Exactly. Okay, you're at a dinner party, which is beginning to happen more and more now, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you you start a really authentic conversation with that person? One of my favorite questions to ask people right now is, how have they changed during the pandemic? Mm. And what's it's it's such an interesting way to get a sense of not just where somebody is at now, but how they got there and what this extraordinary time in history has been doing for all of us. And I think it it is producing an enormous amount of change. We're, we're all gaining things as we're losing things. So there's something in that balance that I think can really reveal people's philosophies, their view on the world and and how they deal with times of real pain and loss. So I'd like to know more about you. How have you changed during the pandemic? <laughs> oh, I knew you'd ask that, Alan. Um, I've really got myself in trouble now. Okay. All right. Um, you know, I would say if I think about something that I've gained from the pandemic, it has been a profound reconnection with nature. I've been spending an enormous amount of time uh, doing walks, going for dives, exploring uh, forests and beaches. I am, you know, I had some illness in my family in Australia, so I spent some time there sort of just reconnecting with the extraordinary landscapes and flora and fauna of the country where I grew up. So that's been one of the things I most, I would say, the most profound changes. Uh, It can be difficult for a girl living in New York City to to get a lot of time in nature, but it really changes the way I think. And, And as somebody who, you know, spends so much time in the world of research and machine learning and artificial intelligence, to be in a completely different kind of space, to be surrounded by, you know, birds and animals and nature, that has been, I think, the strange and unexpected gift of this time. That's great. What gives you confidence? 
Oh, gosh. Confidence in the world, I guess, would be by being steeped in history, that I know that we've been through difficult times before and we'll do it again. Um, I'm also given confidence by the way in which I see people adapting to extraordinary change. That's something that, you know, again, around the world, um, I notice very closely, perhaps from my ethnographic training, but that ability of adaptation is is something that I find, in, you know, gives me enormous confidence about what we'll do as a species. Final question. What book changed your life? This is, of course, the hardest question to ask me. <laughs> I have so many books that have completely changed my life. Um, but if I was going to say one, I might say a book by Lorraine Dastin and Peter Gallison by the name of Objectivity. And this book is, it's, you know, it's a monumental book. It's a very large book. It's a big read, but I strongly recommend it. It looks at the scientific emergence of the idea of objectivity and how objectivity is co-constructed with the tools we create, you know, from, from microscopes to telescopes to, dare I say it now, machine learning. So in some ways, as a book about the history of science, just gave me an enormous shift in perspective in terms of thinking about the way in which our tools can shape the way we see the world and the way we see the world can shape our tools. So it's an extraordinary book. This has been great. I'm so glad you made time to have a conversation with me, and I'm, I thank you very much for it. Alan, I can't tell you what a delight it is to speak with you, and the show is marvelous. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Kate. Bye-bye. Violin. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Kate Crawford is research professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication, and she's an honorary professor at the University of Sydney. She's also the inaugural visiting chair for AI and Justice at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris, where she co-leads the International Working Group on the Foundations of Machine Learning. Her book is Atlas of AI, Power, Politics, and the planetary costs of artificial intelligence. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is the last episode of the current season of Clear and Vivid, and we'd like to give special thanks to the Sloan Foundation for its support of selected episodes. Graham and I will be back next week with a look ahead to Season 16. And as an appetizer, here's a clip from our first guest of the season, the wonderful actor Michael Keaton. 
it, it was an opportunity to have a stage for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And so I could try to do characters or I would do little stories or things that ha observational things and things that happened to me. Because it was really me taking advantage of the club, not to act so much, but kind of, yeah, perform. You know what I mean? Michael Keaton leading off another season of guests with special skills at connecting and communicating on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>